Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey that the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast where we talk about hidden history, depolitical policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the odd man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. In the 20th century, clouds were seeded by numerous countries around the globe with various chemicals to produce rain. China was just doing this over the summer in Beijing to make sure that there weren't any uh, rain that there wasn't any rain during the Olympics. But all this has changed dramatically with the US military secretive research and plans to control the planet's natural weather. This has not been given very much press, and we have to remember that we are, have a corporate-owned press where 85% of radio, television, and print media is owned by five corporations. So they're not going to talk about things that are uh, of really serious consequence, and that's somewhat of the blessing, a mixed blessing of the Internet, but there's certainly plenty of information on weather modification. The Air Force is on record as saying, quote, they want to control the weather by 2025, and we are not talking about just seeding the clouds for rain. Weather modification means, quote, any activity performed with the intention of producing artificial changes in the composition, behavior, or dynamics of the atmosphere, unquote. And as of April this year, there are more than 150 different weather modification programs around the world. Since about 2000, the Department of Defense and the Department of Energy have been spraying the entire United States sky with a toxic brew of chemicals and other biologic agents. We have two different kinds of trails in the sky right now. One are called contrails. How many of you know what contrails are? Contrails are what have been around uh, from the ends of planes since World War II. These are very, very short exhaust trails that usually evaporate within a few minutes. You just look up at the sky and 
you'll just see a jet sometimes with four trails, but it evaporates pretty quickly. How many of you know what chemtrails are? Nobody. The military and some commercial planes are spraying us with what are called chemtrails. And oftentimes, before there's a weather front, there are heavy assaults uh, from these planes just before a weather front has changed and comes in. Military and some commercial jets have been fitted with huge barrels of at least 49 different kinds of documented chemical poisons. Among other documented ingredients in this toxic man-made clouds are pathogenic molds, fungi, Weaponized viruses and made in some places like uh, the secret site at Fort Detrick, Maryland, which is supposed to be a cancer site. But there are a number of scholars and professors tracking this that have big questions about this. Barium and nanoaluminum particles. What do these do to the human body? Barium is an alkaline earth mineral. It was discovered in 1774. At low doses, it can act as a muscle stimulant. At high doses, it detrimentally affects the heart and the nervous system. Barium is toxic to all mammals, and that means not just humans. Aluminum, which is the most abundant metal in the Earth's crust, is known to diminish kidney function and destroy brain cells and cognitive function. Just think about it. Just between the aluminum and the mercury that we're breathing all the time, we've got already a serious issue about uh, brain function and cognitive function. There is also documented evidence that the aluminum in chemtrails is released as nanoparticles and that when they reach the Earth environment for wildlife in lakes and streams, it's causing serious problems with wildlife there. Researchers are also finding that nanoparticles interfere with the growth of plants. Nanotechnology is totally unregulated. Just this past uh, month, a uh, new research report came out uh, showing and documenting for the first time that these nanoparticles actually go through the skin. Well, if you breathe them, whether they go through the skin or whether you're inhaling them, it's still a problem, a serious problem. Here I found an article from the Smithsonian Magazine. Of course, I don't fully trust the Smithsonian by any means, but an interesting article nonetheless. This is from December 5th, 2011 by Matt Novak. Weather control as a Cold War weapon. In the 1950s, some U.S. scientists warned that without immediate action, the Soviet Union would control the Earth's thermometers. Then it says weather made to order by... Navy Captain H.T. Orville, Ike's advisor, reports to man's progress in weather control. On November 13, 1946, pilot Curtis Talbot, working for the General Electric Research Laboratory, GovCorp, climbed to an altitude of about 14,000 feet, about 30 miles east of Schenectady, New York. Talbot, along with scientist Dr. Vincent J. Schaefer, released three pounds of dry ice frozen carbon dioxide into the clouds. As they turned south, Dr. Schaefer noted, I looked toward the rear and was thrilled to see long streamers of snow falling from the base of the cloud through which we had just passed. I shouted to Kurt, swing around, and as we did so, we passed through a mass of glistening snow crystals. Needless to say, we were quite excited. They had created the world's first human-made snowstorm. After the experiments of GE's research laboratory, there was a feeling that humanity might be able to control one of the greatest variables of life on Earth. And 
As Cold War tensions heightened, weather control was seen by the United States as a potential weapon that could be even more devastating than nuclear warfare. In August of 1953, the United States formed the President's Advisory Committee on Weather Control. Its stated purpose was to determine the effectiveness of weather modification procedures and the extent to which the government should engage in such activities. Methods that were envisioned by both American and Soviet scientists and openly discussed in the media during the mid-1950s included using colored pigments on the polar ice caps to melt them and unleash devastating floods, releasing large quantities of dust in the stratosphere, creating precipitation on demand, and even building a dam fitted with thousands of nuclear-powered pumps across the Bering Straits. This dam, envisioned by a Russian engineer named Arkady Borisovich Markin, would redirect the waters of the Pacific Ocean, which would theoretically raise temperatures in cities like New York and London. Markin's stated purpose was to relieve the severe cold of the Northern Hemisphere, but American scientists worried about such weather control as a means to cause flooding. On December 11, 1950, the Charleston Daily Mail in West Virginia ran a short article quoting Dr. Irving Landmere, who had worked with Dr. Vincent Schaefer during those early experiments conducted for GE's research laboratory. Rainmaking, or weather control, can be as powerful a war weapon as the atom bomb, a Nobel Prize-winning physicist said today. Dr. Irving Langmuir, pioneer in rainmaking, said that the government should seize on the phenomenon of weather control as it did on atomic energy when Albert Einstein told the late President Roosevelt in 1939 of the potential power of an atom-splitting weapon. In the amount of energy liberated, the effect of 30 milligrams of silver iodide under optimum conditions equals that of one atomic bomb. In 1953, Captain Howard T. Orville was chairman of the President's Advisory Committee on Weather Control. Captain Orville was quoted widely in the American newspapers and popular magazines about how the United States might use this control of the skies to its advantage. May 28, 1954, the cover of Collier's magazine showed a man quite literally changing the seasons by a system of levers and push buttons. As the article noted, in the age of atomic weapons and supersonic flight, anything seemed possible for the latter half of the 20th century. The cover story was written by Captain Orville. A weather station in southeast Texas spots a threatening cloud formation moving towards Waco on its radar screen. The shape of the clouds indicate a tornado may be building up. An urgent warning is sent to the weather control headquarters. Back comes an order for aircraft to dissipate the cloud. And less than an hour after the incipient tornado was first sighted, the aircraft radios back. Mission accomplished. The storm was broken up. There was no loss of life, no property damage. This hypothetical destruction of a tornado in its infancy may sound fantastic today, but it could well become a reality within 40 years. In this age of the H-bomb and the supersonic flight, it is quite possible that science will find ways not only to dissipate incipient tornadoes and hurricanes, but influence all weather to a degree that staggers the imagination. Indeed, if investigation of weather control receives the public's support and funds for research which its importance merits, we may be able to eventually make the weather 
almost to order. That was Captain Orville there, 1954. And wonder how far they've come along since then, right? An Associated Press article by science reporter Frank Carey, which ran in the July 6, 1954 edition of Minnesota's Brainerd Daily Dispatch, sought to explain why weather control would offer a unique strategic advantage to the United States. It may someday be possible to cause torrents of rain over Russia by seeding clouds moving towards the Soviet Union. Or it may be possible, if an opposite effect is desired, to cause destructive droughts which dry up food crops by overseeding those same clouds. And fortunately for the United States, Russia could do little to retaliate because most weather moves from west to east. Dr. Edward Teller, the father of the H-bomb, testified in 1958 in front of the Senate Military Preparedness Subcommittee that he was more confident of getting to the moon than changing the weather. But the latter is a possibility. I would not be surprised if we had accomplished it in five years or failed to do it in the next 50. In a January 1, 1958 article in the Pasadena Star News, Captain Orville warned that if an unfriendly nation solves the problem of weather control and gets into the position to control large-scale weather patterns before we can, the result could be even more disastrous than nuclear warfare. It lays the predicate and the foundation for the development of a weather satellite that will permit man to determine the world's cloud layer and ultimately to control the weather. And he who controls the weather will control the world. That will permit man to determine the world's cloud layer who controls the weather will control the world. May 25, 1958, an issue of the American Weekly ran an article by Francis Layton using information from Captain Howard T. Orville. Now, this article, in no uncertain terms, described a race to see who would control the Earth's thermometers. The illustration that ran with the piece pictured an ominous looking satellite which could focus sunlight to melt the ice frozen in harbors or thaw frost crops, or scorch enemy cities. Behind the scenes, while the statesmen argue policies and engineers build space satellites, other men are working day and night. They are quiet men, so little known to the public, that the magnitude of their job, when you first hear of it, staggers the imagination. Their object is to control the weather and change the face of the world. Some of these men are Americans, others are Russians, The first skirmishes of an undeclared Cold War between them already have been fought. Unless a peace is achieved, the war's end will determine whether Russia or the United States rules the Earth's thermometers. Efforts to control the weather, however, would find skeptics in the U.S. National Research Council, which published a report in 1964 that said, We conclude that the initiation of large-scale operational weather modification programs would be premature, Many fundamental problems must be first answered. We believe that the patient investigation of atmospheric processes, coupled with an exploration of the technical applications, may eventually lead to useful weather modification. But we emphasize that the timescale required for success may be measured in decades. And, of course, it has been decades since they wrote that in 1964. We are exposed on a regular basis to 100,000 chemicals 
every single day. It depends on the spew, where you are, and I do mean a spew because it's a toxic spew. Uh, and most of these, most of these have never been tested for human safety. We're the guinea pigs for uh, a, an experiment that is way out of control. And this is one of the reasons that we have high rates of cancer, although right now cancer is number two, superseded by uh, heart cardiovascular problems, which is now number one, and asthma, which I will mention later, is number three. In addition, there are 8,000 new chemicals that go online every year to which we're all so exposed. 8,000. These two have never been tested for human safety. Chemicals and pharmaceuticals are tested one at a time, and because the way things are right now, there are very few independent labs and few independent scientists. So a lot of this is, uh, as I say, the fox is uh, guarding uh, a scenario that's really pretty awful. And we have known really since the 30s, particularly for issues surrounding women's reproductive problems, that tampons were safe, were unsafe in the 30s, but a lot of things are covered up, and that has not changed in 70 years. So having uh, the pharmaceutical companies test things or the chemical companies test things doesn't necessarily mean that we're safe if something's put online. Uh, in, additional, in addition, uh, these safety factors that the chemical and the pharmaceutical companies test for, it doesn't real, they're testing one chemical at a time. This does not address what Dr. Theo Colburn in our Stolen Future in 1996 addressed, and that is it's multiple. And one chemical plus one chemical does not equal two. One chemical plus one chemical could equal, especially in hormone-disrupting chemicals, 1,600 times the dose. And we're all walking time bombs. That is a reality. Everybody in this room. Bill Moyers did a great, great show about six years ago called Trade Secrets, uh, which is still available, I believe, on DVD, looking at this whole issue of uh, the multiplicity of chemicals and the problems that uh, the problems, I should say, of greed uh, have caused for uh, Americans. And as I write in The Uterine Crisis, it's all about greed. It's not about our well-being and safety. And there are countless stories about the problems of people who have become critically ill or died, stories going back to the thalidomide crisis in the 60s and 70s, toxic shock syndrome, pesticide poisonings, which are really off the scale, even for small children, and Vioxx, just to name a few. It was on the market when they knew it was unsafe and people were spending a fortune so that the companies could make billions of dollars. We are the guinea pigs in a huge and complex experiment where the health and environmental repercussions are absolutely staggering. Babies are now born with what is called the body burden. That is, while they're growing in utero in their mom's bodies, they are already getting a chemical body burden that is passed on through the umbilical cord. And so by birth, these poor, innocent children are already affected. And there are staggering rates of birth deformities, cancers, and other reproductive-related illnesses that we did not have 20 or 30 years ago. When I was growing up, there was no such a thing as a children's hospital. Think about it. We have children's hospitals all over. What has happened? What has happened? Just think about that figure. What does 100,000 chemicals mean in a mixture that is not even being tested in its vast mathematical complicity?
March the President to the National Academy of Science from Constitution Hall in Washington, D.C., October 22, 1963. And third, there is the atmosphere itself, the atmosphere in which we live and breathe and which makes life on this planet possible. Scientists have studied the atmosphere for many decades, but its problems continue to defy us. The reasons for our limited progress are obvious. Weather cannot be easily reproduced and observed in the laboratory. It must therefore be studied in all of its violence, wherever it has its way. Here is an oceanography. New scientific tools have become available with modern computers, rockets, and satellites. The time is ripe to harness a variety of disciplines for a concerted attack. And even more than oceanography, the atmospheric sciences require worldwide observation and hence international cooperation. Some of our most successful international efforts have involved the study of the atmosphere. We all know that the World Meteorological Organization has been effective in this field. It is now developing a worldwide weather system to which nations the world over can make their contribution. Such cooperative undertakings can challenge the world's best efforts for decades to come. And fourth, I would mention a problem which I know has greatly concerned many of you. That is our responsibility to control the effects of our own scientific experiments. In April 28, 1997, Bill Clinton's Secretary of Defense, William S. Cohen, those we don't speak of, he gave this speech. There are some reports, for example, that some countries have been trying to construct something like an Ebola virus, and that would be a very dangerous phenomenon, to say the least. Alvin Toffler has written about this in terms of some scientists in their laboratories trying to devise certain types of pathogens that would be ethnic-specific so that they could just eliminate certain ethnic groups and races. And others are designing some sort of engineering, some sort of insects that can destroy specific crops. Others are engaging in an ecotype of terrorism whereby they can alter the climate set off earthquakes and volcanoes remotely through the use of electromagnetic waves. There are plenty of ingenious minds out there that are working to find ways in which they can wreak terror upon other nations. It's real, and that's the reason why we have to intensify our efforts, and that's why this is so important. Now, of course, that wasn't the whole speech, but again, that was Secretary of Defense William Cohen, Terrorism, Weapons of Mass Destruction, and U.S. Strategy. It was at the Sam Nunn Policy Forum, University of Georgia in Athens. What if you could fire a laser at the sky and make it rain? Oh, that sounds more interesting. Dave Malkoff explains. Just another stormy, wet afternoon in central Florida. But what if you could pick up all this rain and move it where it's needed? Texas or California? What if a laser 
could start the rain. So you can almost use it to set it off. Matt Mills got into lasers as a kid. It's just innately cool. Now he's part of a team of scientists and military backers on the cutting edge of a new technology, making lasers powerful enough to reach up here into the sky where a thunderstorm is just about to start. In the near future, a push-button storm starter could be a real thing. Just imagining this situation, if there was a rain cloud that was going to pass over an area of drought and not rain, you could, you know, theoretically induce the rain and get the rain where it's needed. That storm starter isn't the laser beam itself, but rather a popping energy that comes off of much higher power beams than this one. The problem is those pops have always had trouble getting into the sky. Now Matt has discovered a way to get the laser to pop all the way in the clouds. In theory, that's what starts a storm. We created a cloud of our own behind Matt's lab. A few months ago, Matt's colleagues in Arizona got this working experimentally. The next step is to get it to work in the sky. The particles in the air are rubbing together, forming static electricity, and the conditions are now right. And they just need to be triggered now. Does this concern you that you may be messing with Mother Nature and doing something that you don't completely understand up here in the cloud? I, I, I mean, I suppose that's always a danger, but we're not even near to the case where it could be dangerous yet, so not too much. It's almost like an on-off switch for a thunderstorm. That's the idea behind it. Right here in the cloud. Yep. In Orlando, Dave Malkoff, The Weather Channel. Now, here are some terms that you can look up, and we may look up a few of these, but Project Cirrus, Project Skywater, Operation Ranch Hand, Project Skyfire, Project Storm Fury, Weather as a Force Multiplier, Owning the Weather in 2025. That was by the USAF Air University. And from space.com here, way back in October 31st, 2005, they had an article by Leonard David, U.S. Military Wants to Own the Weather. The one-two hurricane punch from Katrina and Wilma, along with predictions of more severe weather in the future, has scientists pondering ways to save lives, protect property, and possibly even control the weather. While efforts to tame storms have so far been clouded by failure, some researchers aren't willing to give up that fight. And even if changing the weather proves overly challenging, residents and disaster officials can do a better job of planning and reacting. In fact, military officials and weather modification experts could be on the verge of joining forces to better gauge, react to, and possibly nullify future hostile forces churned out by Mother Nature. While some consider the idea far-fetched, some military tacticians have already pondered ways to turn weather into a weapon, and it says harbingers of things to come. The U.S. military reaction in the wake of hurricane that slammed the U.S. Gulf Coast might be viewed as a harbinger of things to come. While in this case it was joint air and space operations to deal with the after-the-fact problems, perhaps the foundation for how to fend off disastrous weather may also be forming. Numbers of spaceborne assets were tapped. Among them, navigation and timing signals from the Global Positioning System, GPS of satellites, the Global Broadcast Service, a one-way space-based high-capacity broadcast communication system. The Army's Spectral Operations Resource Center to exploit commercial remote sensing, satellite imagery, and prepare high-resolution images to civilian and military responders to permit a better understanding of the devastating terrain. 
U.S. Air Force Space Command Space and Missile Systems Center Defense Meteorological Satellite Program, DMSP, satellites that compare lights at night, image before and after the disaster to provide data on human activity. Is it so far-fetched to see in this response the embryonic stages of an integrated military-civilian weather reaction and control system, it asks. I'm going to skip the next part. It's just about the civilians and the military working together. This is the interesting part here. Thunderbolts on demand. What would a military strategist gain if having an on-switch to the weather? Clearly, it offers the ability to degrade the effectiveness of enemy forces. That could come from flooding an opponent's encampment or airfield to generating downright downpours that disrupt enemy troop comfort levels. On the flip side, sparking a drought that cuts off fresh water can stir up morale problems for war-fighting foes. Even fooling around with fog and clouds can deny or create concealment, whichever type of weather manipulation does the needed job. In this regard, nanotechnology could be used to create clouds of tiny, smart particles. Atmospherically buoyant, these ultra-small computer particles could navigate themselves to block optical sensors. Alternatively, they might be used to provide an atmospheric electrical potential difference, a way to precisely aim and time lightning strikes over the enemy's head, thereby thereby having thunderbolts on demand. Perhaps that's too far out for some, but some blue sky thinkers have already looked into these and other scenarios in Weather as a Force Multiplier, Owning the Weather by 2025. A research paper written by a seven-person team of military officers and presented in 1996 as a part of a larger study dubbed Air Force 2025. That report came with disclaimers such as the views expressed were those of the authors and didn't reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, Department of Defense, or United States government. Furthermore, the report was flagged as containing fictional representations of future situations and scenarios. On the other hand, Air Force 2025 was a study that compiled with a directive from the Chief of Staff of the Air Force to examine the concepts, capabilities, and technologies the United States will require to remain the dominant air and space force in the future. Current technologies that will mature over the next 30 years will offer anyone who has the necessary resources the ability to modify weather patterns and their corresponding effects, at least on the local scale. Current demographic, economic, and environmental trends will create global stresses that provide the impetus necessary for many countries or groups to turn this weather modification ability into a capability. Pulling it all together, it says, the report on weather-altering ideas underscored the capacity to harness such power in the not-too-distant future. Assuming that in 2025 our national security strategy includes weather modification, its use in our national military strategy will naturally follow. Besides the significant benefits, an operational capability would provide another motivation to pursue weather modification to deter and counter potential adversaries. The report stated, The technology is there waiting for us to pull it all together, the authors noted. In 2025, the report summarized, U.S. aerospace forces can own the weather by capitalizing on emerging technologies 
and focusing on development of those technologies to warfighting applications. Such a capability offers the warfighter tools to shape the battle space in ways never before possible. It provides opportunities to impact operations across the full spectrum of conflict and is pertinent to all possible futures, the report concluded. But if whipping up the weather can be part of a warfighter's toolkit, couldn't those talents be utilized to retarget or neutralize life, limb, and property-destroying storms? All weather worries. It's time to provide funds for application of the scientific method to weather modification and control, said Bernard Eastland, chief technical officer and founder of the Eastland Scientific Enterprises Corporation in San Diego, California. He outlined new concepts for electromagnetic wave interactions with the atmosphere that among a range of jobs could be applied to weather modification research. The technology of artificial ionospheric heating could be as important for weather modification research as accelerators have been for particle physics, Eastland explained. In September, Eastland filed a patent on a way to create artificial ionized plasma patterns with megawatts of power using inexpensive microwave power sources. This all-weather technique, he noted, can be used to heat specific regions of the atmosphere. Eastland's research is tuned to artificial generation of acoustic and gravitational waves in the atmosphere, the heating of steering winds to help shove around cyclones and hurricanes, as well as controlling electrical conductivity of the atmosphere is also in his investigative agenda. Thank you very much. It's definitely an honor to be here in Belgium. The, the people who are in power control everything. They control the markets, they control us, and now they're even controlling the weather. And they can use that for warfare applications. The one thing that they cannot control is what God had originally made, and that's natural organic seeds. This is called the Hegelian dialect. It's called problem, reaction, solution. The problem here is massive amounts of aluminum, things starting to die. The solution is company X that says, hey man, you're not getting yields on, on your crop. Everything's dying, but I got the solution. I got a seed that will grow in this environment. The only problem is now you have to start buying from me. We're a little concerned that maybe part of this agenda could be to kill off anything that's natural and organic and re-engineer it with aluminum-resistant GMO seeds. Could a strange substance found by a Southwest Arkansas man be part of a government test? Well, that's the question at the heart of a phenomenon called chemtrails, now getting widespread attention. Well, they say the government is dumping chemicals on us to control or manipulate the weather. And they say the unusual-looking jet trails in the sky are actually chemical-laden chemtrails. People say the government is up there in airplanes spraying all kinds of chemicals to change or manipulate the weather leaving what you see there, and they call that a chemtrail. So what I look at there and I think are contrails, you're telling me are chemtrails. Yes, that a contrail would be dissipated by now. And it's interesting, Dale and Christina, this is of interest not just in this country, but uh, European countries and frankly all over the world. A lot of folks interested in it. Well, Dave, you mentioned that climatologists and others who study the atmosphere believe that they'd be able to surely spot any kind of signs of an ominous plot. Chemtrails. 
On the Internet, they are cited as proof of the government creating clouds to combat global warming. They claim the American government, with the secret approval of the national government, is covertly using jet aircraft to spray population centres with aluminium, with barium, and with strontium, so as to reduce people's humidity and reduce the global population. I'm always a little bit suspicious because the government doesn't seem that um, capable to do something on such a large scale. You know? That is not rain, that is not snow. Believe it or not, military aircraft flying through the region is dropping chaff. Small bits of aluminum, sometimes it's made of plastic or uh, even uh, telesized paper products, but it's used as an anti-radar issue and obviously they're up there practicing. Now they won't confirm that, but I was in the Marine Corps for many years and I'll tell you right now, that's what it is. What happens here? Military jets, some come out of Key West Air Force Base and they move off into the atmosphere and they drop mylar strips. Some could be a little wider, some are small glass fibers that are coated in aluminum. And what the Air Force does is they take their military jets and they dump these out of the aircraft, they fall into the atmosphere, and some take as much to a day to fall down. This is inevitably military or something going on, the government, the Air Force. You see this kind of a pattern like this. You can rest assured there's something going on. They're actually little bitty magnetic and little bitty strips of whether it's aluminum. It's a nuisance to you and I to determine what's real and what's not, but it looks like it is a life-saving operation there from the military. Now, I learned a lot of what I know about weather modification from the documentary Frankenskies, and I'm going to go over a few of the programs because the creator of that, Matt Landman, he kind of pointed out that you have to know the names of these programs to really get anywhere, because if not, you will get down some conspiracy rabbit holes. Now, of course, we all know about HARP, the High Frequency Active Aural Research Program. There's also the Tropospheric Aerosol Program, or TAP. There are the Stratospheric Aerosol Injections, Solar Radiation Management, which we know Bill Gates and others want to do, Project Popeye in Vietnam was when they actually made it rain. Torrential rain came down and flooded the Viet Cong. Geoengineering by Scopex. That's S-C-O-P-E-X. Ionospheric heaters like HARP and others. Air pharmacology is another one. Charged aerosol release experiment or CARE. Albedo enhancement. That's A-L-B-E-D-O. Stratospheric Controlled Perturbation Experiment, Operation Cloverleaf, Marine Cloud Brightening and Whitening. So we'll get into a few of those, but if you know the names of the programs, again, you'll be able to look up this stuff yourself. And I think that it's important to realize, you know, a lot of people, even though all these conspiracies have come true, a lot of people are realizing that so much of what's been hidden from the public that's been called conspiracy has truth in it and is rooted in fact. And this is no different. And I believe that they've been experimenting with the weather for a long time and just not telling us. And I think one of the easiest ways to prove that is just watch your sky. If you live in one of these areas where this happens, a lot of these planes will start to go overhead. And in a couple hours, You'll go from a beautiful blue sky to this just drab white sky because all the clouds will come together. They don't dissipate. And that's just a fact. It is called geoengineering, fighting global warming by putting a chemical dust in the atmosphere and reflecting harmful radiation back into space. We take geoengineering to mean deliberate, large-scale intervention in the Earth's system. 
There are a variety of schemes that have been discussed for geoengineering. A classic example is uh, injecting reflecting particles into Earth orbit. Nevertheless, there might be some good reasons to think about alumina. It turns out, first of all, there's been a lot of work on the environmental consequences of alumina in the stratosphere. The big deal really is that alumina has four times the volumetric rate of forcing it for small particles, as does sulfur. And that means you have four times the surface area for the same rate of forcing. And this is a much bigger deal. You'd have roughly 16 times less the coagulation rate. And that's the thing that really drives removal. So you could get away, we think, with much smaller mass fluxes. So that's why we see things like in the uh, use, use aircraft patent from 89, they talk about aluminum. And that's why we're seeing in the surface water samples aluminum. And here's David Keith saying uh, that aluminum has four times the reflective uh, volume surface area. So they'd like us to think that we're talking about sulfur, but here they slipped up and let it out that uh, aluminum is four times better to achieving their ends, and it sounds like it's kind of one they don't want us to know the effects of. Mm. The little picture is from a nanofabrication study, which shows you can make very high quality, and do this in just a jet in a very simple way, make high quality alumina particles just by spraying alumina vapor out, which oxidizes. So it's certainly in principle possible to do that, and there's a big literature that's already looked at that. And you could do that by either building new versions of these aircraft or even re-engineering existing aircraft. So there's some ideas of that. So you go to an engineering firm and you want this done. They don't say this is hard or unusual. They say, okay, yes, we could do it. Aerosol geoengineering looks like it is so cheap that the cost is basically not going to be an issue. That means that implementation decisions will be risk-to-risk -risk decisions. The risk of doing it against the risk of not doing it. And it makes the problem of how we govern it fundamentally harder and different and normal. So I've told you this, cheap to deliver materials to stratosphere, and I'm convinced that's true. I don't think that will change. But I think the more we do research, the less easy this will look, the more complicated the environmental effects will look. And that's a good thing, because right now it looks too easy. So I think that if we do more research, we're likely to find out that it's harder and more complicated than we thought, and that the side effects are harder to manage. And that's a healthy outcome that will make it easier to do the management. Of course, the opposite reaction is possible. It's an empirical question how people will actually react to knowledge about this. Another reaction is to say, if these crazy scientists are so concerned about putting CO2 in the atmosphere, they want to think about these things, then that might actually mean we should be more serious about the risks of CO2 in the atmosphere. And by the way, it's not really a moral hazard. It's more like free riding on our grandkids. And by the way, it's not really a moral hazard. It's more like free riding on our grandkids. I, I think, that not, along with many um, physicists, uh, I, or most physicists, I think, who've looked at this uh, solar radiation management uh, is a very dangerous uh, technology and it, it, in many ways it would itself constitute dangerous interference with the climate system. So I think these sort of experiments um, translated into policy are, are deeply unwise and deeply unhelpful. Um, I think that there's very substantial uncertainties about the effects of solar radiation management technologies. We don't understand their impacts at large scale on the monsoons, on precipitation, rainfall regimes. And what we do understand about it tells us that we need to be profoundly concerned that these uh, technologies could provoke really major damages in different regions. Um, what I'm also concerned about is the way in which um, this solar radiation management technology as a branch of geoengineering is being aggressively pushed now. And it's, it's a real um, puzzle to me, and I think a real, a real shame and a discredit to those pushing this, that they are at the very moment in which we are seeing fundamental changes beginning to happen in the energy system, 
out there in their pamphlets, brooches, lectures and talks claiming that mitigation has failed and therefore we need to look at these uh, very dangerous technological approaches. Now I want to read a little bit from a book called Weather Warfare by Jerry E. Smith. Now this book is 17 years old, so he's been talking about these things quite a long time and he worked with Jim Keith, who was another infamous author that has passed on, but this kind of thing has been in the spotlight in conspiracy circles and alt media for a long time. And I think that just now more people are starting to realize that there's actually something to this. Now, I'm going to read from the chemtrails section here. He's explaining the difference between contrails and chemtrails. A contrail is a trial of condensation, conversion of water from a gas to a liquid that is left behind by a passing airplane. Most commonly, a commercial jet, military craft, try to avoid leaving them to remain undetected, and piston-driven aircraft seldom get high enough to reach air that is cold enough to cause contrails to form. A chemtrail, however, is an alleged plume of intentionally released chemicals or other material, either sprayed from nozzles or as particulates mixed with the plane's fuel, that mimics a contrail. Many people around the world are concerned about this purported spraying program. Others are convinced that chemtrails are nothing more than urban legend and hysteria with perhaps a touch of disinformation. Frankly, he says, I find the arrogance of those who insist that there is nothing to the chemtrail stories amazing. The only way that one could know with absolute certainty that nothing was going on would be to know literally everything that was going on with every aircraft on the planet, and there is no one that is omniscient. Those who insist that this is all nonsense can only be speaking from their ignorance of any specific project, and their arrogance in assuming that they are so important, that if anything were going on, those doing it would surely tell them all about it. Well, as the UFO folks put it, absence of proof is not proof of absence. There is a growing body of scientific evidence that contrails are hardly benign. But are they part of some global plot? There is circumstantial and documentary evidence that there are, or may be several spraying programs, both civilian and military in nature, but are they criminal conspiracies? Those who have amassed this evidence believe that there are indeed one or more conspiracies involved. Critics dismiss it all as insanity and conspiracy theory. Calling something a conspiracy theory is a propaganda technique. Conspiracy theories are only theories until they are proven. In the United States, conspiracies are proven in the courts week after week. People constantly conspire to traffic in illicit drugs, child pornography, or to commit other crimes. Why should we find it so difficult to accept that individuals with big corporations like Enron or agencies of our government like the CIA might conspire to conduct shady business. It is a proven fact that civilian contractors overbill and otherwise steal millions from the government. As I write this, the jury has just found out former Illinois Governor George Ryan Sr. guilty on all charges of corruption and conspiracy, proof that officials at the highest levels of government do, at least occasionally, conspire to commit crimes. Check out prisons and you will find that the majority of those incarcerated were convicted of conspiracy to dot 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 in addition to other charges. Yes, conspiracy is a growth industry in America today, yet lazy journalists and apologists for the status quo 
dismiss anything not readily provable as conspiracy theory. Or, as Gore Vidal put it, apparently, conspiracy stuff is now shorthand for unspeakable truth. It is also a known fact that the governments engage in covert activities, some of which may be completely legitimate, but not something they would want foreign powers to know about. On the other hand, some of these covert ops are highly questionable, such that citizens and other governments would object if they were revealed. Chemtrails could be examples of both. Delving into the possibility of clandestine operations and or conspiracies is the time-honored role of the investigative journalist. Where would Woodward and Bernstein be if they had stopped looking into Watergate just because someone said it was all a conspiracy theory? So what can we prove about the chemtrail theories? Let us start with the understanding of contrails in general and the environmental hazard they pose. Contrails mostly form when humid air from an aircraft's engine exhaust mixed with air of low vapor pressure and low temperature. Vapor pressure is a term for the amount of pressure that is exerted by the water vapor itself as opposed to atmospheric or barometric pressure, which is due to the weight of the atmosphere. If the air is sufficiently moist, contrails can also form because of the pressure differences between air streaming over the wings, meaning air coming under them. If condensation does occur, then a contrail becomes visible, either immediately, behind each engine, or the plane as a whole, usually behind the tail, or sometimes just from the wingtips. When hydrogen in hydrocarbon-based jet fuel is burned, it combines with oxygen in the air, yielding water, H2O, that is emitted from the engine. This water quickly freezes into ice crystals, since air temperatures at high altitudes are very cold, generally colder than minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Because of these low temperatures, only a small amount of liquid is necessary for condensation to occur. If temperatures are above minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit, or the relative humidity of the air is less than 73%, it is unlikely that a contrail will form. These ice crystals forming the contrail behave like a naturally made cloud. If enough moisture is already present in the air, the contrail can spread by growth of the ice crystals. Then he goes on to say, are persistent contrails actually chemtrails? I really hate to go up against this popular misconception. Now, I think this is important. But the mere persistence of a contrail is no proof of it being a chemtrail. Before you throw up your hands and say, I'm part of the conspiracy, please read a little further. There are chemtrails, as I will show, but the persistence of a contrail is not a reliable indicator of its contents. A persistent contrail may or may not be a chemtrail. The artificial formation of clouds via contrails is very similar to the process that occurs when you breathe on a cold winter day and you can see your own breath in the form of a cloud. You may have noticed that on some days, this cloud you produce lasts longer than others. The length of the time that a contrail lasts is directly proportional to the amount of humidity that is already in the atmosphere. Drier air leads to shorter-lived contrails, whereas high humidity will lead to longer-lived contrails. With enough moisture, all jets will produce contrails with or without a secret ingredient. If the atmosphere is too dry, no contrails will form. So even if a plane actually were spraying, you wouldn't see it. That's comforting, right? The skies above the southwest are typically too dry, and the skies above the deep south are generally too hot for extended contrail coverage. 
These factors, plus varying density of air traffic over different parts of the country, combine to make the skies in the Midwest and the Northeast, and to a lesser extent, the Pacific Northwest, particularly laden with contrails. Weather watchers have known for some time to look at the persistence of a contrail for clues in weather forecasting. On days where the contrails quickly disappear or never form, one can expect continuing good weather as the air aloft is very dry, while on days where contrails persist, a change in the weather can be expected. Natural cirrus clouds are the first harbinger of an approaching storm, appearing 6 to 24 hours before the bad weather arrives. Artificial cirrus clouds from contrails indicates moisture-laden air at high altitude. Contrail, or he says in parentheses, cloud banks, can form a day or two ahead of the natural cirrus, giving farmers and backpackers an early heads up on what might be coming. The persistence of a contrail, then, is not a good indication of its contents. Occasionally, a jet plane, especially if ascending or descending, will pass through a much drier or more moist layer of atmosphere, which may result in a broken pattern to the contrail, with it appearing in segments rather than in one continuous plume. This can give the appearance of spray nozzles, suddenly turned on or off, of course, it is possible that sprayers actually are being turned on or off. The atmospheric conditions give plausible deniability. All right, guys, I think we're going to finish up right there because I don't have time to finish up this chapter. But we will continue the chapter on the next continued series episode for this show. And I think that hopefully this has given you enough information to have conversations with people about the subject of geoengineering, weather modification, contrails, perhaps chemtrails we'll get more into the specifics on the next show and we'll talk about a little bit about who has been doing these experiments because we know recently that of course bill gates has talked about it and that's got other people to talking about it a little bit about the sun dimming and different things like that but we'll get into more specifics and talk about who has been doing these studies for quite a long time and it's several really really important organizations and I think that that will let you know that, yeah, they've been experimenting around for a long time. But I think we've proven in this episode that there is potential there for weather warfare. And obviously, they don't tell us everything about war and about their weapons and about the things that they have, the technology that they have, because they don't want to scare people or freak people out. And they may be doing nefarious things with some of these different types of weapons to us here at home. Now, I'm not saying they are, but I'm saying it's possible because look at what all has happened to us in the last hundred years or so. Anyway, I thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Please share this show. I want to thank my patrons, and if you want to support the show, just go to patreon.com forward slash the odd man out. Check out what I have to offer there. But I want to get to it right now. I want to thank Cole. I want to thank Ashley. I want to thank that crazy bread man for being a covert co-conspirator. I want to thank Aaron. I want to thank Ruckus from the Daily Ruckus on AlternateCurrentRadio.com. Please check out his show on there as well as all the other shows. Check out the Daily Ruckus and check out Ruckus's work on TNT Radio as well. Thank you, No Evil Shall Fear. Thank you, Mark from Housatonic Live. Please check out Mark's work on YouTube as well as his other sites. Thank you, James. Thank you, Bill S., for being a producer of the show. 
Thank you, John Brisson, from We've Read the Documents. Get on over to Twitter and follow John, and you can see all of his links on Rumble and Library and all the rest. Thank you to the Mighty Kilowatt. Thank you to Sir Tim of the Tunnels. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, David. And thank you, Jack Allen from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence. Check out Jack's work on YouTube and all your fine podcasting platforms. Now I want to thank my podcasting family at alternatecurrentradio.com. Check out their flagship show, The Boiler Room, as well as all their music and talk shows. And also check out Hesher from Alternate Current Radio and The Boiler Room on TNT Radio as well. That's The Brian McLean Show. It's got some great information on there and great guests as well. And I just really appreciate you guys. As always, hope everything's going well with you. Cheers and blessings. And remember, guys, their order is not our order. See you guys.